Hello and welcome back to the now official Herschel Miller Show. It's been a great week. I'm glad to be back in the saddle again recording a video and this is really starting to feel a lot easier as I'm going forward. I've got three videos. This will be my third video now under my belt. I've got a couple of viewers now, which is always great. I'm actually getting feedback. Mason, when you watch this, I want to tell you thank you, man. My buddy Mason, uh reached out to me the other day while I was at work and asked me what the name of our podcast was. I gave it to him and he watched three hours of it and I genuinely appreciate that. Um, to the other viewers, as always, thank you for tuning in. It means everything to me because when I do these videos, when I take the time out of my day to sit down, record, and then I'm not really editing yet, but it does take time to upload, to... Uh, put everything together, it it means a lot to me when I feel like what I'm doing means something. So, this week's going to be a little bit different. Uh, the first two weeks I did it, I kind of done a little bit of story and a little bit of topic, but today I was kind of running out of ideas. Um, not because of lack of current events, but just because of stuff that I wanted to talk about. So, today, I reached out to a couple of my friends around, uh, you know, that I've met along the way, uh, and I'm going to answer, answer the questions is not really the right way, because it wasn't a Q&A style, it was just more, hey, this is something cool I'd like to see you talk about. And, I do think that going forward, if this video gets at least five likes, that's probably what I'm going to continue doing. So please, if you enjoy the content... Please like, share, subscribe, and follow us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube, and share this video with your friends. I do hope that one day I can make a difference, and this is the way that I'm doing it right now. So to begin today, from follower of the page, Joey Bushido Turner, he asked me, if I could talk a little bit about the people in politics that inspired me and kind of molded my political worldview. So, I thought about it for a while, and there's numerous people that I could say inspired me, but I've narrowed it down to three. And I'm going to go through them in, from the oldest to the youngest. So to begin, Otto von Bismarck, the Iron Chancellor himself. Unifier of the German state, the most important man in late 19th century Europe, who molded and shaped the future and the 20th century as we've become or would come to know it. He was very different than a lot of the nobility of, of Europe. Um, he was no populist as we would know it. He was very much a pro-monarchist, very much a, I hate to say the word divine right of kings, but he, he definitely wasn't what I am. So you may ask, what what does a pro-monarchist aristocrat from 18th century Europe have anything to do with this show, or 20, 19th century Europe have anything to do with the show? And here is where. Otto Bismarck understood better than anybody the power of stability. So when Otto would, um, when he rose to power, and obviously I could never begin to cover the full history of his life in this video, but Otto 
was a political mastermind in a lot of ways. He was very great, very, very great at understanding political maneuverings and what you had to do to accomplish what you wanted to get. Um, so, to make a very long story short, Otto works his way into the German or the Prussian royal family. He manages to get himself a position where he is the go-to guy in Germany. Well, Prussia again. I, I keep saying Germany, but it wasn't Germany yet. He was the he he was the original catalyst for Germany as we would know it in the twentieth or nineteenth and twentieth century. So he would play one side against the other. He would cause this empire and this nation state to go at each other so that he could advance his own cause and would eventually culminate in the Franco-Prussian War where he made the German Empire into what it was. But that's not where his story ended, even though he was fairly old at the time. See, Otto instigated very, very pro-worker, pro-civilian policies. In fact, the world's first national health service was in Germany. Way back when. Now, mind you, Otto was as conservative as a person could be. But even he recognized the value of a national health service. A national health service means productive workers. It means healthy populace. It means more kids. It means better families. It means so much to the average person to be able to go to the doctor and to be able to, uh, well, get healthy again. And you think about that today as in... How many people in the United States need health insurance, need or need health need health care, and can't get it? You know, there's very uh, quite a few times in my life that I would say that I've sat around and thought, I really need to go to the doctor, so I'm going to have to keep working at this place because if I quit, I will lose my insurance. Or I've thought, I don't have insurance, so I hope whatever's wrong with me isn't life threatening. Um, cancer is a prime example of this. A lot of people in the United States are so scared to go to the doctor that the cancer diagnosis has progressed to the point that it's terminal by the time they actually get there. Because usually by the time somebody in the United States goes to the doctor, they are severely, severely ill. Because the fact is is that we can't afford it. Now, a libertarian argument may be that it's too expensive because of the government, but That's not a bad argument, but here's the problem. There is no way that you could build a system that is privately funded and not exclude people from coverage. Because the entire point of a market economy is to create scarcity. A good is only worth something if it's rare. That's the reason rocks in your front yard don't cost that much, if anything. is because, well, there's rocks everywhere. And if everybody has health care coverage, then there's no incentive to do it. So, while I agree that, in theory, a totally privatized medical healthcare system would be cheaper than the monster that we have at the moment, it can never cover everybody. Which is why I'm a believer in, sometimes I would say I'm more of a believer in Medicare for All, which still leaves a, which is private-operated, publicly-funded. Sometimes I'm in favor of National Health Service, which is publicly funded, publicly operated. So it is a toss-up. 
the reason that I go back and forth is because there are days that I sit around and I think, okay, well, the VA sucks. Do I want the VA to be everything? And then the other part of me says, the VA sucks because it's been horribly underfunded for the last several decades. But then I'll say, do I want the government to have sole control of the healthcare system? So these these arguments, I do have these conversations where I I do question my beliefs. I do try to make sure that I'm not believing something simply to believe it. But back to Otto. Otto invested heavily in the infrastructure of Germany. He invested heavily in the in the labor force. He invested heavily in the military. He he made the German Empire a very, very nice place to live. And this led to, had it not been for the failings of Kaiser Wilhelm III, or second, Kaiser Wilhelm II, I believe that the German Empire would have been the dominant force in Europe for the 20th century. So, Otto deeply inspired me. A person of conservative beliefs that also believed in the, the, the power of stability and public investment. Somebody that I look up to, would literally look up to. The dude was like 6'5". He had this big walrus mustache. Makes me jealous every time I see it. Um, and if I sound a little weird today, I've been feeling under the weather the last couple of days. I'm not sure what's wrong. It could just be allergies. It could be the new job. Well, the new location that I'm working at. It could be a lot of things. But, just in case you're wondering. Next guy, the guy that deeply inspired me. Teddy Roosevelt. Now, everybody knows about Teddy. The rough-riding American manly man who fought bears and boxed while he was in the White House and rode up San Juan Hill. I mean, he was just about as much of a caricature of America as you've ever seen in your life. He was, in so many ways, inspiring in so many ways, a great man. And he did have his flaws. He did have his beliefs that would be considered to be objectionable today, but... Teddy was, to me, the greatest president we had. And, and one of the things that made Teddy great, and one of the reasons that I don't like modern progressives, Teddy was willing to get stuff done. He was willing to compromise. He was willing to stand in between the two great forces and, and mediate and to make sure that, look, it would be very easy for me as a union laborer to say that we don't need the big companies, we don't need big capitalist investors, but at the end of the day, I don't have several hundred million dollars lying around, and I'm not sure that I trust the government bureaucracy to properly spend that money. And this is not me defending the, the, whole, the, the absolute terrible state of the U.S. economy. This is just me saying that I understand that there is a, a, a place for entrepreneurship. There is a place for private ownership of business. And as long as that private owner understands his role in the society as somebody who helps drive us forward and not somebody that parasites off of the products of American citizens, then I have no problem with him. And a good example of this with Teddy was the debates between the strikers and the, uh, let's see, the coal strikers and the big coal companies, where Teddy basically said, the, so let me set the stage, there was a coal strike in the United States that was leading to massive coal shortages across the country. 
at a time when the United States was rapidly industrializing to meet the rest of the world. We wasn't quite the economic powerhouse that we would become post-World War II, or even post-World War I, but we was definitely swinging way up there. Miners go on strike. These miners, they, they went on strike for very good reasons, low pay, bad working conditions. But the fact is, is that their strike was limiting the growth of the United States. It was causing panic. And not to mention, too, at the time, people heated their homes mainly by coal. So this is obviously something that's going to create issues. So Teddy gets in between the coal miners and the companies. And he says, look, you coal companies, you're going to meet these set of conditions right here. And you're going to improve the conditions of your jobs. Now, to you miners, you're going to go back to work. You're not going to continue to strike. You're not going to continue to try to demand more. This is the agreement. This is how everything's going to go. Now get your ass back to work. And yes, this is a very simplified, very basic view of what happened. I mean, obviously a person could write an entire volume about what happened there. But the point of the story is is that Teddy... He wasn't totally in favor of labor. He wasn't totally in favor of capital. It was that good balance right in between that helped make him such an important president. Because at the time, and in a lot of what we need today, we don't need an entirely pro-labor president that answers to the beck and call of the unions. As much as I think that it would be nice for me, unions can become corrupt just the same or have become corrupt in a lot of instances as as the big corporations. Because if you have people at the top that aren't responding to the needs of the people down at the bottom, then what's the difference really at the end of the day? We need people that are willing to make the compromise, that are willing to get in between for the betterment of us all. And yes, Teddy was a bit of an expansionist at times. You know, the, the, there were things about him that were not the greatest. But all in all, I would argue that Teddy Roosevelt was our greatest president and a man who deeply inspired me. The last guy was Huey Long. Huey, every man of King Long. He has, he's definitely the most unknown of the three I've listed so far. He is definitely the least impactful on world history, or even U.S. history. His entire political career virtually stops at the borders of the state of Louisiana where he was a senator and governor. But in recent years, thanks in no small part to certain online video games that have used him as a character, he has regained a lot of popularity and a lot of people have started to look into the ideology of Huey Long. It's There's actually a term for it. It's called Longism. It is an ideology which states that Investment and, and, and working class politics, helping unions, building schools, building hospitals, building bridges, building up your local infrastructure, using your state's, the wealth of your state, which in his case would be the oil barons and the, 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 the bourbons down in New Orleans. These people, which had vast, vast sums of money that were doing nothing but setting in bank accounts and stock brokerages and other forms of wealth control, these places, these people, should use should have that money taken from them to use to help fund the poor, the people that actually help make the money in the first place. Now, 
at the time, he was called a communist and a socialist and all other forms of derogatory slurs, but he was none of these things. In fact, Huey Long was an avid anti-communist and avid anti-socialist. He was very much against the ideas of, of Soviet Bolshevism. In fact, most of the reason that he used most of his policies was to prevent a Bolshevik revolution from happening in the United States. Now, we may laugh at that today, but at the time, there were very real, very growing movements inside the United States that were directly tied to Soviet Russia. Um, so a couple of the things that Huey did very well. Huey was a master of political maneuvering. He strong-armed his way from a nobody part of North Louisiana into the governorship of the state. He overcome the, the rich bourbons and the landowners and the industrialists in the southern part of the state to be, for lack of a better term, the dictator of Louisiana. But he done something very unique in the history of dictators and despots is that he actually used his authority and his power to directly impact the lives of the people below him. He used his power for good. Now, he is not, no Robin Hood. Huey's list of corruption and crimes is almost immeasurable at times. But he is the prime example and a person who has made me, th has least caused me to think about it. About you know the age-old question about the ends justifying the means. Huey done so many good things for Louisiana, Im improving the infrastructure. And, and here's a funny story for you. LSU football. Their stadium has their college dorms around it that are empty. And the reason for that is that Huey or LSU wanted to build a new football stadium, but the state government would not allow L or would not allocate the funds to LSU for them to build one. But they would do it for a dorm room. So Huey, involved in this entire process, helped build a dormitory with a football stadium in the middle of it. That they would just go ahead and leave the dorms empty anyway. Yeah, that's not one of his greatest achievements, but it's one of them ways that kind of encapsulates the spirit of Huey as a guy that knew how to get things done, and we need that today. One of the things that I hate about progressives is the fact that they are so useless at the end of the day for doing anything positive with this world because they they are so concerned with microaggressions and racism and so many other of the isms that occur on, in our day-to-day -day life that they forget to stop and ask the question is, is that are what we doing actually helping anybody? And can you say that a progressive has genuinely helped you? Now, look, if you're part of the LGBT community, if you're part of the black community, you should say yes to that question. It is the progressives that have helped drive you. But they are not doing anything for workers. No real change for workers. They're not doing anything for farmers and ranchers. Uh, they're oil field workers, people like that, people that desperately need help because their entire focus is on on injustices and prejudices, when at the end of the day, the greatest injustice of all is the wealth inequality is the strength for in this country. Now, what I mean by that is not simply that some have and some have not, but that the haves have so much. Yes, they're not Scrooge McDuck with, you know, a fountain of gold in their back room. What I mean, though, is that their assets, their ability to help directly impact the lives of people is so vast, and yet they do nothing most of the time. The pittance of charity that they give out is 
no different than the robber barons of the late Gilded Age, trying to appease their sins or to atone for their sins with small chunks of charity, which actually even worse because people like Andrew Carnegie gave away huge sums of money. Now, that does not absolve Andrew Carnegie of the sins of his life and what he has done to the striking workers, but even he, he gave a huge portion of his wealth, when he, and especially the book, The, uh, the Gospel of Wealth, that he helped pen which basically highlighted the need for the, the aristocrats and the, the, the industrialists to provide to give money back to their communities. So back to Huey. Huey would be, by most accounts, a distributist by today's. And if you don't know what a distributed distributist is, if I can talk for five minutes, here's what you need to know. They believe very much in the in the teachings of Christianity. They believe very much in the teachings of of the Catholic. It's, they're not necessarily Catholic. You don't have to be a Catholic to be a distributist. But a good chunk of the distributist parts of this country, the people that believe that way, are Catholic. Um, but it believes, it, it says is that, that the communities should divide up amongst the wealth amongst each other. This does not in a communist sense, not where we all give up our property and our land. But look, when I have more, like here's a good example. When I cook a pot of gumbo and I feed my family and I have half a pot left, there's nothing wrong. You you should invite somebody to come. Maybe somebody needs that meal. Somebody needs a, a hot meal. Now, this doesn't mean you need to sell your house and your property and everything else. This just means is that as a, as a, as a, as a citizen, as um, in, the, in the distributed sense, a child of Christ, your job is to take care of those around you when you are fortunate enough to have what they don't. And Huey, maybe he didn't necessarily believe all that. Maybe it was just a front. But he did that. You know, his share our wealth programs, his slogan, every man a king, his war was standard oil. I mean, I could go on and on endlessly about some of the great things that he accomplished, but he he done more for the lives of the average people than any blue-haired feminist has ever dreamed of. As much as she might try to believe or he might believe that he's had some great impact on this life, the truth is, is that standing out on the street with a sign and waving it around is not changing any damn thing. Who was a person that believed is to, to have any real change in politics. you got to get in there and you got to get dirty and you got to get mean just like everybody else. You know, one of his famous quotes, he wished he could be a politician like everybody else, but he couldn't. Because a normal politician doesn't win. Donald Trump is a prime example of this. You can love Donald Trump or you can hate him. You can despise his very existence. But Donald Trump won because he was a different kind of politician. It, it goes back to a central point that I try to make often. People today crave honesty and authenticity. When they listen to somebody talk on a podcast like this one, or when they listen to a politician talk, they want to believe that what that person's saying is what they actually mean. Because for so many generations, we've been told over and over again so many grandiose ideas and great things that politicians were going to do for us for them to do absolutely nothing. That they would wrap their talk up into some political jargon and make it sound wonderful when at the end of the day they were going to stick the knife in your back anyway. So this is what Donald Trump did right. People believed that he was authentic, that he was exactly who he portrayed himself to be. Now, obviously, I have my disagreements with that. But that's not the point. 
They believed that with all of their hearts. I, I know people today, people in my family, that are still diehard Trump supporters. Now, I have my disagreements, obviously, but when you talk to them, they have hope. They had a, a real hope for the first time in so many years that something was going to change for them. And that's what Huey did. Huey changed the lives of people. The reason he was so popular in the state of Louisiana and so infamous at times was the fact that he got shit done. And when you get shit done, your name will go down in history. And and this is the thing. Huey was killed either by his own bodyguard or by a gunman at the capitals at the capital in, in, in Louisiana. And this was in 1936. One second, please. This was 1936. Had he not been shot, there is a very real possibility that Huey Long could have beaten FDR in 1938. Or 19... 36. Yeah, it was 36. Later that year. He was polling well. He was popular. There was people from all across the country that had become part of his share of wealth program. And it really could have been something. Now, fate wasn't so kind to us. But I believe his legacy, though dormant dormant for many generations, has started to resurface itself across our country. And as we go forward, I believe that the Kingfish will become a household name again. Now that was a fun seg- segment. I'm going to light up a smoke. <laughs> Try to clear my nose. Oh God, the allergies suck around here. Shit. What am I going to talk about next? In the meantime, quick topic, real quick. This is what I want to say to people learning to drive. Several years ago, there was this miraculous invention that that, that the auto manufacturers developed called the turn signal. When you're turning left, either merging or making a committed turn, or turning right or making a committed turn, Use your turn signal, people. It's free. All you have to do is flick your wrist. Turn it on. It's great. It lets all of the other drivers that are in front of you or behind you know that you're about to switch fucking lanes so they we don't get in a wreck. Because I was driving home today. Now, my truck is slow. 55 miles an hour is about the best I go most of the time, and I take my leisurely time everywhere I go, and I try to be as courteous a driver as I can be because I know that I am the slowest asshole on the road today. But today, guy gets in front of me. We're driving down through there. He turns left, slows down, speeds up again, slows down again, speeds up again. And this whole time, I'm trying to figure out what kind of drugs this dude is on because he has to be on something hard. Pulls in front of me again, flips his turn signal on, yanks the car over. Nearly causes a bad wreck. And this whole time I'm thinking, there was no cars in front of us, no cars behind us. He could have sped up ahead of me. He could have slowed down behind me. He could have just not done that. So please, people, before you get me killed, use your turn signal. Learn how to follow the rules of the road. It's not that hard. We all, I mean, there's 16-year-olds that know how to drive better than some of these people. Although I would say that I am a believer in having to take a driver's test every so many years to make sure that you still know what the fuck you're doing.
On to the second topic. This one set in from a good friend of mine and follower of the show, Lloyd Paul Ogden Jr., who hopefully will be a future addition to the Patriotic Populist lineup. As a reminder, while I'm on the subject, if you are interested in doing a, po- a populist-centered podcast, please reach out to me or the page, and we'll see if you can become part of the Patriotic Populist family. We offer great bon- or great deals, I would say. Better than you're going to get from most other big, you know, so, okay, let me back up, because we're not popular enough for people to know our plan yet. What we offer is this. If you come under our umbrella, we offer 80% of any video you produce that you send in to us to be distributed by us. You get 80% of your revenue. The 20% is kept back for us to help with running costs, to help with ad revenue, to help with, you know, basically anything that we need to keep the organization running. But what you are becoming is part of a bigger organization. You're not fighting by yourself. You're not trying to to wade through the YouTube algorithm as a small startup channel. Now, if you want to do it that way, by all means, more power to you because we're that right now. But there's strength in numbers. There's strength in unity with each other. And when we start standing together, we can start making a bigger difference faster. On to the subject, though. Lloyd sent me in a question. And I'm going to try to be briefer on this question because I plan on talking about it with Nevin next time we have a show together. But he wanted to talk about the cyber attacks on the colonial, I believe it was, the colonial pipeline that run from Texas to New York State. And it is a mess if i ever seen one. So Darkside, hacker group based out of Russia, hacked into the colonial, I guess it would be the website, and shut down a pipeline, a freaking pipeline, across the United States, sparking fear, panic, and panic buying, for the idiots that don't think the gas will come on in five minutes, all across the eastern part of the United States. And even people in, like, California, they were buying up gas by the bucket. I mean, literally, I've seen people filling up buckets on Facebook. It was the stupidest shit I've ever seen in my life. But the question has to be asked, how did this happen? Now, from what I've read, I read an article by the BBC earlier that was talking about it. What they think happened was, is that Darkside had developed a program, because you can access the Colonial login page for employees. Easy, I could do it right now. Basically developed a, a, a piece of computer software that tried usernames until they got one that actually matched. Now, I'm not tech savvy. I don't claim to be tech savvy. But I do understand what they're saying. You just try enough combinations of letters, numbers, and whatever, and eventually you will find somebody. And then you do the same thing with passwords once you found a valid username. Who knows how long this could take? Seconds? It could take days. It just depends on just how encrypted and just how secure a password is. Which, if it's like me, won't be that hard. Don't worry. If you steal my identity... You'll be selling it back to me. I ain't worth nothing. But something does have to be said, though, about the infrastructure and especially our cybersecurity at the moment. Early on in Joe Biden's presidency, the infrastructure package become a very big deal, and we have yet to see a major infrastructure bill that, well, one that we need because, what was the, the previous one? Let me look this up real quick, just to make sure, because I don't want to be lying on video. Because somebody will eventually find this and make fun of me. 
Um, I hate doing this on camera. Mm. Two trillion of what should be about eight trillion dollars. See, I knew it was lower, but I wanted to make sure that I was honest on here. You can fact check me on that. Here's what happens. Joe Biden proposes a $2 trillion, or at least somebody in his cabinet, proposes a $2 trillion infrastructure bill, which is the equivalent of being shot in the leg, catching gangrene, being mauled by a cougar, being thrown into an active volcano, and struck by lightning all at the same time. And a school nurse walking up to you and handing you a band-aid and telling you to change your socks. Look, people, at the end of the day, we need way more money, way more investment in our country. And yes, there's an argument to be made that the Republicans in Congress are holding it up. And that is a real thing because they don't want to spend any money as much as they made it, you know, Trump made it a huge point. Again, another instance of the GOP just absolutely abandoning anything that Trump run on in 2016. What I'm getting to. Yes, the GOP is not helping this situation at all. But this is the time that a leader, the President of the United States, has to step up, has to get out in the streets and demand, and put pressure on them. Say, look, people, the reason that your roads are crumbling, the reason that your hospitals are underfunded, the reason that our infrastructure is crumbling around us is these senators over here that would rather not tax people had have bought their fourth super yacht or would rather not you know, that, that refusing to affect their donors or the reason that your, your Interstate 40, for example, has been under near constant construction now for 50 years. Or, I mean, it's never really technically ended. Uh, look, the point I'm getting to is this. We need massive, massive, direct, and immediate infrastructure spending across this country. I mean, the I-40 bridge in Memphis at the moment is a prime example. We have degrades in almost every single category across the United States, from bridges to roads to buildings to airports. And the reason is, the massive infrastructure spending that occurred in the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s was not supposed to last forever. It was supposed to be continued. You have to repair Look, when you build a house, you don't assume that it will stand there for the next thousand years untouched. You have to constantly and continually help fix the leaks, fix the burst pipes, fix the bad wires. There's so many things that you have to do to help keep a house livable, and a country is no different. A country is, in a lot of instances, a big home. And a lot of the same things that apply to me and your daily lives in our houses apply to how a country has to be operated, from the way that a family interacts with each other to the way that we have to continually spend money. Now, a good way to put this is this. A family of four buys a house. It's a little old. needs a little fixed up. Two of these people are working class people. They get up every morning. They drive to work. They put in their hours and they go home. And they make a little bit of money, not getting ahead in life, not falling behind. One person in the family is very sick. He can't make much money. He lives his life on day-to-day amounts of government disability. His life is a struggle already, and he can't contribute that much, and we shouldn't ask him to. But the fourth person, he hit the lottery. He has, you know, 
$600 million in assets now. Now, which one of them people should be asked to repair that house? Now, it's reasonable to ask everybody. Even the person with disability should be asked to give something. Substantially less, but something. The two people in the middle, moderate income that they have, should be asked to give a moderate amount. But the person that has, the person that has amassed this fortune through one one means or another, should be asked to pay the most. Now, yes, the person at the top, maybe he shouldn't lose everything. But it's unreasonable to ask people at the middle and people at the bottom to pay more than the person at the top. And that's what's happening right now in our country. We have these corporations and these individuals that have amassed massive sums of money. Some of them legitimate and some of them illegitimate. And this is not a conversation necessarily about the, the, the tenants of wealth or privilege or whatever. This is simply saying this. The reason that these people have amassed this fortune, people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, the Walton family, is because of the security and stability of the United States itself. See, because it is the people in the middle that get up every day, go to their job, put their hours in, and go home. That are what keeps this country operating. Because as much as some people would like to believe it, they have still not figured out how to run an economy without employees. And they definitely will never figure out how to run one without consumers. We need each other. Yes, I definitely believe the balance of power has become skewed in one direction right now, and the people that have have got all the control. But the people in the middle, the ones that get up and do all the hard-ass work, the people that go fight the wars, the people that, you know, are the glue that holds this whole shitty place together, are the people that are bearing the brunt of the responsibility for everything. Yes, It has been said before that the top 1% pays 50% of the taxes in the country, or some close variation of that. But they also benefit the most. See, I'm not really in favor of setting up an entire system of proportional taxation. And basically the way a proportional taxation system goes is that if you're in the top 90th percentile of the country, then you pay in the 90th percentile of taxes. It's some... So, I'm trying to say this better. If you're in the top 3% of income earners, you pay a tax rate that reflects that. And if you're in the bottom 1%, then you pay a tax rate reflected of that. What I'm getting to is this. I'm not really in favor of that. I think that a simple tax code that we had post-World War II, was, it worked. It wasn't perfect. There was loopholes, obviously. But it worked. It encouraged companies to spend money and to keep, you know, to not hoard that money in Panama and Swiss and Liechtenstein bank accounts, which we have going on today. Because that was the, the fundamental flaw of Reaganomics, of Milton Friedman, Chicago economics, with, with, with uh, Hayek and Austrian economics, was the assumption that those that have will eventually have enough. But as we found, the cup is never full for them people. They can never have enough wealth. They have wealth simply off of the virtue of having wealth in a lot of instances. And I'm no advocate for equality of everybody because let's be honest here, it's an unreasonable goal. I get up every morning, drive an hour into work, do a hard job, and I go home an hour back. 
And I ought to be paid more than some people that don't do that. That doesn't mean that I believe people that don't do that should starve to death. No, we absolutely should push for living and livable wages across this country. That was the original intent of the minimum wage. But I'm not delusional enough to believe that that uh, somebody at McDonald's, good worker and dedicated workers they may be, should be paid as much as a tradesman. It's, it's simple. It's, I'm not going to sit here and, and pander to people. That's not my job. My job is to give my honest opinion on on stuff, and I want to give it. But we go back to infrastructure. The people that have benefited the most from the infrastructure are the industrialists, are the company owners, because their trucks drive on our roads, on our bridges, on our rail systems. They benefit from the security of our military. The presence is all around the world, securing trade routes and countries to trade off of. And they ought to be the ones footing the majority of the bill, a bill much larger than the one we have right now, to help rebuild the economy, to help rebuild the infrastructure, to help rebuild the way that America is known around the world. Now, is that going to happen? I have my doubts. But if you ask me what needs to change, that's where I'd start first. And this last one, from my buddy Mason, is going to be very controversial. And I'm going to approach it with as much delicacy as I can, giving fair points to each side the best I can. But I want to tell everybody that what I'm about to say is my honest opinion. And if you don't like it one side or the other, that's up to you. You can always quit watching the show. He asked me to talk about transgender athletes in sports, specifically male athletes in women's sports. Now, I've made it a point to not dive into social politics on this show. And I want to stay away from them as much as possible, but when people ask me, I, I do my best to try to answer the question honestly. So, Mason, you better have stayed tuned for this entire video because I'm going to, to ask you about this next time I see you. So let me start by saying this. There is a fundamental difference in the biology of men and women and that anybody that has spent more than five minutes... And now, I'm going to finish first. I've grown up around animals my entire life. And you can tell the difference in between a male and a female animal. Not looking at their genitals, their bone structure, their build, their 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 attitudes are very different from each other, animal to animal, or to sex to sex. People are no different. Now, I have no interest and no care about a person's sexual orientation. Nor do I really care how they dress up on their free time. I have lots and lots of bigger problems to worry about in my life than what somebody else is doing like that. But, let me say this. When you watch... Uh, let's take a high school basketball game. There was a girl in my school, one of the most athletic girls that my school had ever seen, oozed talent, oozed athletic ability, oozed all the things that a, a coach would want out of a girl. And when she was in the 8th grade, could beat any boy her age or younger but by the time she was a senior she was an average basketball player on compared to most of the boys because the boys were bigger and stronger and faster and that's just it it's it's ugly it's not always great i understand a person that might feel a certain way but that's just it when you look at what fallon fox did in the ring it wasn't a contest it was a massacre now 
I'm not going to go on some long campaign about banning transgender athletes from schools because that's just, again, and I say this again, we have way, way, way bigger issues. But it is an issue, and I would say this, is that if you're asking me if I would let my daughter get into a ring with a man, I wouldn't. If you're asking me if I would let my son wrestle against women, I wouldn't. Because there's no contest there. When I graduated, there was not a single woman in my entire school that was within half of how strong I was. And I wasn't anything special. Um, and it's kind of one of the things. Is, yes, there are examples of women that are very abnormally strong. I mean, there was a woman in Russia I was reading about, this girl, she was like 19 years old, who had a, a medical condition where she had another layer of muscles, could bench like 500 pounds. Yes, there are women like that. I've met Helga's in my life. What I'm saying is this, though, that on the average, men are bigger, stronger, and faster than most women. That's the reason that men hold every conceivable sports record, just about. That's the reason that you don't see women compete in the Olympic sprints against the men. It's just no contest. Same goes for wrestling, same goes for basketball, same goes for football, same goes for baseball. It's it's not anything wrong with them. There's nothing fundamentally wrong with a woman not being as good, as athletic as a man. And this is not every man is athletic. This is just saying, if you compare athletic men to athletic women, or average men to average women, that's what you get. Now, my sisters... You know, they were way better ball players than I was because they were more skilled at it. But as far as the physical assets, I was faster than my sisters while I was fatter. I was stronger than my sisters when I was half their age. Or, I, I never was half. You know what I mean. When I was 12, I was stronger than any of my sisters. When, and there two of them quite a bit older than me, or at least a couple years older than me. So what I'm getting to is, to me, it's a no-brainer. Now again, I don't care what you do in your bedroom. I don't care what you do in your spare time. I don't care what you believe you are. It's up to you. It's not my business. And I genuinely don't care. But let's not lie about what we see right in front of us. Because it it does it does a disservice to everybody. Now if you want to argue for rights, if you want to talk about optional unisex sport leagues... I don't care. I mean, that doesn't sound bad to me. I mean, look, if you want to see a bunch of women get beat over the head, that's that's up to you. That's not me. But I'm not going to let my daughter get into it. And I don't think you should let yours. To deny the, the biological difference in between the sexes to be completely ignorant of any scientific evidence that we have. Yes, I'm not talking about gender, whatever term that the progressives are using today. What I'm talking about is actual biological sex. And it's just the cold, hard truth of reality. Um, I got one more topic. More of a lighthearted one. I wanted to do it last show, but I kind of went a little ranty. So I'm going to decide I want to do it here. Now, put your boomer camp cap on, folks. Because I'm about to really hate on some new music. I don't like new country music. Oh no, the hillbilly doesn't like new country music. Yes, I know. I've heard it a thousand times too. To me, the reason I don't, 
And this kind of goes for a lot of music today. This is not just country music, but obviously that's what I listen to more than anything. Or used to. I listen to more alternative stuff now. But the reason that I don't like new country music isn't so much because of the snappy EDM beats or the overused lyrics or the absolute obsession with the appearance of the singer. It's the fact is that it has no substance at all. Now, what I mean by that is this. When Johnny Cash was singing Folsom Prison Blues or Sunday Morning Coming Down, or when Willie Nelson was singing about Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain, or or when uh, you know these, these these great singers, they could tell a story. Even necessarily if they hadn't lived it. I mean, most people don't know this, but Johnny Cash never went to prison his entire life. He, I mean, he'd been in jail. He, he was in he never was a prisoner, but the story felt so authentic that that could have been a song that a prisoner wrote because that was a story of people that had lived hard, of people that had lived life like the rest of us do. I mean, yeah, country music will always be dominated by love songs and breakup songs. That's part of the story. But the way that they're written really, really matters. You know, Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain is one of the most deeply sad and deeply passionate songs probably ever recorded. It is up there with the greats. And every single word felt real. When Waylon sung Good Hearted Woman, you know, and talking about the struggles of, of, of a woman that lives with a man that hasn't settled down yet, that's a song that you could think he wrote about himself. But when you when you look at these songs today, and I'm not necessarily blaming the artist because the industry is just it is what it is. It's an ugly, dirty game. But it's so processed, so refined, so formulized that the the the, the sincerity of the songs has completely been lost. And it's you could talk about the ways that Nashville Incorporated has deliberately decided to go for a more pop-centric route to become more appealing across the, the barriers, but what they've lost in the process with all authenticity with its actual country roots. Now, I'm a big believer that country music is not an exclusive term because to me, there's no fundamental distinction between Delta Blues and country music when you're talking about the origins of the music. Robert Johnson, growing up in the Delta, was just as country as as Johnny Cash growing up in Arkansas. So I do think that one of the biggest problems is, is that what do we even mean by country music anymore? And this is a fundamental question because what defines a genre, a genre varies person to person, but I think that there's a couple of things that definitely did define country music. It wasn't necessarily the rhythmic structures, it wasn't necessarily the instruments, although the the lap steel, the telecaster, the fiddle, the banjo, these instruments did play instrumental, pun intended, roles in developing country music. But that wasn't necessarily it, because there's different levels of, of, of music you, that, that was performed by various country artists. I mean, there's no doubt that, that Willie Nelson was a far better guitar player than the average country music singer like Johnny Cash or like Waylon or like Merle or like uh, Conway. 
What to me what that defined country music, what made it so unique, was the ability to relate a story to the average person and the lives that they experienced. It's blues shares this very well. Why I think that the the two are very intertwined with each other. They they share a common legacy in a lot of ways. They when you listen to a Conway song, we can compare for a minute. When you listen to Hello, Darling, Conway's, arguably Conway's most famous song, you know, and it tells the story of, of, of a man and woman that is split up and him running into the woman later on when she had found a new husband, or maybe boyfriend, I wasn't really, not really sure. But they, the, 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 the rawness and the truthfulness of what that story means can be felt through the singer because many people from all across the country can relate to that story. We've all lost somebody to somebody else. But what made it different than today, because there's plenty of songs today about losing somebody and, and meeting them later. The difference is is that when you listen to a new country song, the majority of them, now obviously there's gems in the rough. Chris Stapleton's one of my favorite artists. Coulter Wall, Cody Jinks, uh, Josh Ward, um, Nick Shoulders. These are artists that are singing and performing and recording music today that are what I would consider to be genuine artists in every sense of the word. But the majority of the people that you see today that are performing on Nashville's biggest stages are, for lack of a better term, soulless. The music is performed in such a way and written in such a way that it's designed to achieve maximum profit. But yet again, we have lost everything in the hopeless pursuit of something that will never be. Country music will never be as popular to the majority of people as pop or rock or rap or other musical genres because at its core, it's 20 years behind everybody else. It's it's almost funny to think about it, but if you trace the lineage of country music's rise, it's always a generation behind the majority of the country. If you listen to 80s country, it sounds like 60s country. 90s sound like the 70s with the heavier rock. The 2000s sounds like the 80s. These, and today, overprocessed, overdone country music sounds like early 2000s crappy pop songs and we hate that for the same reason we hate it today is that you can tell that some studio exec is standing behind all this trying to squeeze every ounce of of I'm lost for the word right now uh, but basically the, he's trying to I'm, I'm really having a brain fart at the moment He's trying to get it marketed to as many people as possible, palatable, as palatable as possible. Um, so, and that that's something, I, a little bit of a rant, not a great end of the show, but it is something I wanted to squeeze in. So, let's do a little channel admin real quick, and then I'll get off of here. So, state of the populist. Everything on our side is looking good at the moment. We're making new connections, making new friends. People all the time are, you know, 
reaching out to us. And I deeply say, anybody that watches this video, I genuinely appreciate every comment, every message you send us. Every time you reach out to me personally or reach out to Nevin. Um, Nevin has a video series coming up with an undisclosed person. I don't want to disclose the information just yet because it's... You know, don't count your chickens before they hatch and something could change. But if it goes well, Nevin is going to have a, a video series with a very successful guest. And I really look forward to seeing that. We have... Uh, new guy that's coming on supposed to be recording a video for us so we're going to see how that goes will be our first official expansion into a uh, into a new podcaster me and Evan are going to continue our uh saturday show like always although we may miss this weekend due to some scheduling conflicts but hopefully by next weekend we will have our own regular show again and as always i plan on going back to this um, I put it up as a question, regretfully didn't get any responses in the official group, probably because nobody sees the group anymore, um, but I have decided to stay with the Herschel Miller Show, although I didn't really like it, because that's what the people I reached out to wanted. Um, so from now on, this show will officially be the Herschel Miller Show and will stay as such. Um, I'm trying to think. There's probably one or two other things I was wanting to touch up on the channel admin, but for the most part, I've covered all the bases that we need to. Um, I want to thank you for those who listened in to the end of the show. Um, if this is the thing, I really need feedback right now. Good, bad, ugly, or otherwise. I don't care if you call me a son of a bitch or a bastard or dumbass or whatever but i need the feedback right now because i'm not going to quit this nevin's not going to quit this we're going to continue with the patriotic populace and we're going to go places so please leave your thoughts honest criticisms honest praises or whatever else in the comments below if you like the content please consider subscribing liking and sharing the videos check us out on facebook same name YouTube under the Populous Patriot because somebody else has already taken our name. And on, I know we're on uh, Spotify, Apple Podcast. Uh, there's two more. I can't ever remember, but most of you are going to be using Spotify if you listen to a podcast. And I'm thinking about going on Twitch politics, but I don't, not really sure I'm ready to make that commitment just yet with the current limited technology I have. But, to wrap up before the hour mark, I want to thank all of you and ask that you tune in next week for another episode of The Herschel Miller Show. It's been my pleasure, and may you have a blessed day.